morning, church. It is a pleasure to be here with you today, and I'm just so thankful for Pastor Adam and Dennis and Covington Baptist Church, and what a, what a privilege to, to be with you guys, and congratulations, Adam, on your doctorate tomorrow, and being able to, to, to end that long academic um, race, and what an what a amazing relief. I don't, I don't know if I've ever done anything as relieving as finishing a doctorate, so that's got to be awesome. So congratulations to you, and uh, what, a, what a pleasure to, to be here with you guys today. Turn your Bibles to Romans chapter 8. Um, I know you've been unpacking First uh, Peter, verse by verse, um, which, as you know, has to do with suffering. And our living hope in the midst of that suffering, which enables us to endure those things, even with joy. And so with that backdrop, I thought that Romans chapter 8 would be such an appropriate way um, to, an appropriate passage to speak on this morning. Let's begin uh, with prayer. Heavenly Father, we thank you for the depths of your love. Though we may fear and though trials happen and there is suffering in this life, though we may be persecuted, nothing can separate us from your love. There is no pit that is so deep that it can keep us from your love. And I pray that you'd minister to us in a special way today. That we might not only understand these things as facts in your word, but that we might be captured by your love. That we would go forth today zealously proclaiming the glories of Calvary and what you have done. And in Jesus' name, amen. God is love. That's one of the fundamental premises of Christianity. If God wasn't love, then God wouldn't be God. I wonder, though, do you ever question or do you ever doubt the love of God? We tend to evaluate someone else's love for us based on how they treat us. And perhaps there's been times in your life when you felt like God hadn't treated you so well. You know, maybe you've asked yourself questions like this, or certainly you've heard other people ask these kinds of questions. Right? I know that God loves me, but why does he allow my family to suffer? I know that God loves me, but why doesn't he heal me? Right? If God really loves me, why do I feel so lonely? And I know non-Christian people who don't give God the time of day, and their lives are great. And, and the list goes on. Many People ask these questions. Where was God when I needed him? Why do I feel like he hasn't been faithful? 
I have a, I have a friend who, um, his wife has some really significant uh, health issues. And while she was being treated at the hospital, she was, she was taken advantage of. And it made her mental condition worse. And, and so here's my friend, he's got two young children and a wife who's incapable of caring for those children. And, and he asked me, if, if God is so loving, why did he allow this to happen to me and my family? Now, I, I want to be fair, because these are real, legitimate questions that people struggle with. And, and I want to respect that. And, and some will use these kinds of questions to reject God. They'll use them as an excuse. But, but even Christians, at difficult points in your life, will genuinely ask these questions and, and you'll want answers. But let me suggest that these are the wrong questions. There are better questions. And our problem is that we tend to listen to ourselves rather than listen to the questions that God's word asks. And, and at the end of Romans 8, did you notice all the question marks in the passage? Because the Apostle Paul asks the right questions that point us in the right direction. Because it's important that we frequently remind ourselves what's true and right from God's word rather than than listening to our feelings, which are, which are very fallible and subjective. So I want to remind you this morning, if you are in Christ, right? If you have faith in the gospel, you've repented of your sin, you can live with confidence that there is nothing that can separate you from God's love. And that's the statement on the screen. That's what I believe is really the crux of the Apostle Paul's argument in this passage in Romans 8. In Christ, I can live with confidence that nothing can separate me from God's love. Is that, is that something that you can say in your heart? Or do you ever feel like God doesn't love you. Maybe you've prayed and you've prayed and you've prayed about something and you just feel left dry. So we've, we've rhetorically asked some of, some of the wrong questions. So what are these right questions in, in Romans 6? And there are six of them in the passage. The first five questions refer to the work that God has done for us. And then the last question has to do with his great, great love for us. And I've, I've categorized these two questions then under two headings. And the first is this. Look at what God has done for us. This is his work. These questions relate to the amazing things God has done for us through Christ. 
So his first question is, is a really simple one. In verse 31, he says, what shall we say to these things? Which begs the question, what are the these things that he's talking about? Well, we're in Romans 8. Paul has just spoken about these amazing things that God's done for us that transcend any earthly trial or suffering that when we were lost, when we were dead in our sin, and sin's consequences are death and separation from God, when, when we were living for the world and rejecting the God who made us and worshiping ourselves, God loved us. And he loved us so much that he sent his son to die for us. And through his death and resurrection, he has justified us or declared us righteous. Not on the basis of anything that we have done, but on what Christ did for us on the basis of faith. And that beautiful verse in Romans 8, chapter 1 says, There is now therefore no condemnation. We were under condemnation. We were under wrath. But Christ has set us free. And what I think Paul is, is really focusing on when he says these things is, is, are those facts as a whole, but specifically what he had just said in verse 29 and 30. Look down at verse 29. It says, For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his Son, in order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. And those whom he predestined, he also called. Those whom he called, he also justified. And those whom he justified, he also glorified. Uh, these verses have been called the golden chain of salvation. And they show the progression of what God has done from beginning to end to secure our freedom from sin and our ultimate glorification. And when we put these things into perspective, our earthly suffering compared to these eternal realities become very small. And so when you ask the question, what then shall we say to these things? Those are the things he's talking about. Look at what God has done for us. So he asks another question. He says, if God is for us, who can be against us? Right? If God, who through Christ defeated sin and death, if he is on our side, who can be against us? Right? But you say, what do you mean? It seems like the whole world is against me. Because if you're living for Christ, you're going to experience opposition. The world, the flesh, the devil are united against you. But what he means is they will never prevail because God is for you. That beloved verse in Psalm 23, verse 4, that many of you know, says, even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil, for you are with me. Because God is for us, 
the, the gates of hell could literally rise up beneath you and try to swallow you, but our great shepherd Jesus says, I give them eternal life and they will never perish and no one will snatch them out of my hand. Isn't it wonderful that it's not our hold of Christ that keeps us, but it's his hold of us? Uh, there was a fourth century church father named Athanasius and uh, he was exiled from the Roman Empire. Five times he endured incredible suffering for the name of Christ. And his tombstone, which I just love that this was written on his tombstone, says this, Athanasius contra mundum, which means Athanasius against the world. The opposition of the whole world didn't matter to him because if God is for us, who can be against us? But how do we know God is for us? There's a third question in verse 32. What length did he go to to be for us? It says, he who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? Do you see the argument that he's making here? It's an argument from the greater to the lesser. Right? If God can lift a rock that weighs a million pounds, that's the greater thing. Of course he can lift a rock that weighs 10 pounds. That's the lesser thing. So, so the logic in verse 32 is, if God has given us what is most precious to him, what else would he possibly withhold? He, he crucified his son to take our punishment and guilt, and he raised them from the dead. He went to the greatest possible length to save you. That's the greater thing. That's the harder thing. Of course, he's going to graciously give us all things. That's the lesser thing. That's a piece of cake to God. Now, what does it mean when he says he'll give us all things? I mean, is that prosperity gospel? Did Christ die so we could be rich and healthy? Well, verse 35 negates that pretty soundly. Christians can experience famine and suffering and distress, right? Christ giving us all things doesn't mean everything we want or ask for. But it does mean more than anything we could ever ask or understand. Because giving us all things, that's what looks back to the these things in verse 31. The things that have to do with our salvation back in verse 29 through 30, that predestining and calling and justification and glorification. God has saved us. If you are in Christ from the condemnation that you deserved and he's chosen you and he's taken your death sentence and declared you righteous even though we are all inherently unrighteous. But not only that, he has adopted you into his family and he calls us his sons and daughters by which we cry, Abba, Father, you say, how can God love me when he let my family fall apart and ruin my life? But because of your salvation, you have something much 
greater. And God has given you the tools to press on. He calls you his friend. He's the source of comfort. He indwells you with his spirit and he gives you his presence even in death. And if he has given you Jesus, the greatest of all possible gifts, he can be relied upon to give you the lesser gifts. And even they are, the, are better gifts than we can ever imagine. As John Stott says, the, the cross proves God's generosity. Now, as we continue on to the next couple verses, starting in verse 33, the book of Romans uses a lot of legal imagery, and, and, and we're taken to a courtroom scene, and he asks two more rhetorical questions. Verse 33 says, who shall bring a charge against God's elect? It's God who justifies. So the devil might accuse you. Your enemies may accuse you. I mean, they've seen you stumble and fall. They've seen you at your worst. And even you readily admit that you're at fault and you've messed up. Your own conscience accuses you. But no matter the evidence, no prosecution will ever successfully succeed because you are God's elect. And the judge himself has chosen you and declared you Righteous. Justification. God is the one who justifies. Justifi uh, uh, justification, you, you might say, is, is, is uh, just as if I had never sinned. That's what God does to you when he saves you. That you're declared innocent with a perfect record, not because of what you have done, but because of what Christ has done on the cross. The devil himself is called the slanderer, the accuser, right? Who shall bring a charge, an accusation against God's elect? But his accusations will fall to the ground because God has justified you, declared you righteous. And maybe you have deep struggles with sin and you're burdened with guilt. And guilt can be an oppressing thing. And, and we need to be honest too, it's not initially a bad thing, it drives you to repentance. So confess those sins and turn from them, and if you fall, repent again, and God gives more and more grace. But if you're walking in repentance, then don't let guilt drive you. Because you are a child of God, and the accuser has been silenced and you will never be condemned because you are secure in Christ. And that leads to the next question. He says, who is to condemn? And of course, the answer is no one. Now, this question is very similar to the previous, right? Who will bring a charge? Who will bring an accusation? Who is to condemn? But there's a subtle difference. It's one thing to charge someone or accuse someone, to call forth evidence and say they've done this and this. But the accuser doesn't have the power to actually mete out the punishment. So Satan and your enemies and even your own hearts may accuse you, but God is the only one who has authority to condemn. 
But Romans 8.1, there is now therefore no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Because the judge who has the power to condemn also has the power to declare you righteous. It says, who is to condemn? Christ Jesus, verse 34, is the one who died. More than that, who was raised, who's at the right hand of God and is indeed interceding for us. So the reason why no one can condemn us is because someone else was already condemned in our place. And he died on a cross so we could be justified. And not only did he die on a cross, but he sits at the right hand of God. And he has the greatest position of elevated authority in the universe, and he's interceding for us. That he's the advocate in heaven's court, and he pleads our case before the Father, and there is no case that he doesn't win because he has a perfect record. But still you might ask, you know, if you're so loving God, why are you letting my body suffer from disease? But a better question is, if my body suffers, that's one thing. But if my soul has been justified by Christ for all eternity, and he's my advocate in heaven's court, who can condemn me? He has me in his hand, and I'm in the center of his will, and he sits at the right hand of God interceding for me. Isn't it not so much better to have a body with disease but a perfect standing before God and to be forgiven than to have a healthy body and be condemned. Now God didn't just do all these things for us and save us and send his son just because he had to or because he felt obligated to. No, God did it because he loves us And that's the second reminder in this passage. Look at what God has done for us. Secondly, look at how much God loves us. That God has a deep affection for you. His love is strong because you're his child. And there's a special bond between a good earthly father and his child, and you fathers in the room understand this, and you would do anything for your kids. But our heavenly father is a perfect father, and his love is exponentially greater than the love of any human father. Nothing shall separate us from his love. And and these next verses are, are probably some of the most powerful words in the whole Bible. And, and they, they are what, that, that's our final question. We've already gone through the first five. This is the last question that we're gonna park on for a minute in verse 35. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Who shall separate us from his love? Is there anyone? Is there anything that can divide us from Christ and his love? And now what he's going to do, he's going to list a bunch of things that people think might be able to do that. Shall tribulation, 
or distress, or persecution, or famine, or nakedness, or danger, or sword? Will all of these terrible things be able to separate us from the love of God? Right? Am I going to starve to death? Am I going to be persecuted? Am I going to have enough clothing to keep me warm? Am I going to face death because I love Jesus? Can those things separate me from God's love? Am I going to be out of his reach? And then he proves his point even more by quoting here Psalm 44. He says, as it is written, for your sake we are being killed all the day long. We're regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. What he's saying is you can expect to experience pain. These kinds of things have and, and will continue to happen to believers. And this is real suffering he's talking about. This is no joke. He's, he's not talking about unbelievers mocking you at work or at school. Right? He's not talking here about losing your business because you wouldn't bake a gay wedding cake as what happened to someone a year or two ago. What he's talking about here in verse 36 and verse 35 are people facing real danger and physical harm and even death because they believe in Jesus. And what's so amazing is that the people who received this letter, the Romans, would ultimately experience the kinds of things that he lists right here. So Romans is written in the early 60s A.D., some say A.D. 64. Six years later, there was a fire that burned a large portion of Rome, and the emperor Nero, he was looking for a scapegoat, and he blamed it on Christians. Christians started this fire. And Christians in Rome, the people who received this letter, were rounded up. And they were fed to wild beasts for entertainment. And they were nailed to crosses. And Nero would even set them on fire as torches to light up his garden at night. These were the people who received this letter. And as they were being burned alive or fed to wolves and lions, they would remember these words. Will these things be able to separate us from his love? Would all of this suffering and persecution separate us from his love? And he answers in verse 37. What does he say? No. In all of these things, in persecution or hunger, even if we die, we are more than conquerors. We are overwhelmingly victorious, even in death, through him who loved us. How is that possible? Verse 38, for I am sure that neither death nor life nor angels nor rulers nor things present nor things to come nor powers, no height nor depth nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. That there is nothing in the realm of human experience Nothing in the spiritual realm, nothing in the present, nothing in the future that will be able to separate us from God's love. That if you are in Christ, he will never stop loving you. He loves you now. He loves you forever. Safety is not promised. Good health, not promised. 
Prosperity? Definitely not promised. But the one thing he promises you here far outweighs all of those other things, and that is his eternal love for you. If God is for us, who can be against us? I mean, imagine that there is a scale in front of me here, uh, the scale of God's love. And on one side, there are things that might cause us to doubt God's love. Cancer, bankruptcy, and the death of loved ones, and anxiety, and illness, the ending of a pregnancy, a family member enslaved by addiction, a spouse who leaves you. These are real things, and these things weigh you down, and these are challenges in this life. But imagine that these things are on this side, and then there's this huge anvil that comes, and it just knocks the other side down, and all those little things just fly out of there. When you've had an encounter with the love of Christ that is so heavy and so grand, it far outweighs all of those other things. They're just like little peanuts flying out in comparison. And he loves you in the middle of all that stuff. He loves you in your brokenness because that's the kind of God that he is. And when we're experiencing all of those things, Instead of questioning God in the circumstances, we just need to ask better questions, right? Instead of if God loves me, why did he let this to happen? You need to ask, if God is for us, who can be against us? Instead of where was God when I needed him, ask who will separate us from his love? Most of you, um, you know about Ferdinand Magellan. 16th century Portuguese explorer. He was the first man to circumnavigate the globe. Uh, there was another uh, venture of his. This one was unsuccessful. He wanted to determine how deep the ocean is. So he spliced six long ropes together. Each was about 400 feet long. Um, and he tied a cannonball to the end of that lowest rope. And, um, and he lowered it and lowered it until it reached 400 fathoms deep. A fathom, by the way, is the height of an average man. So 400 fathoms is about 2,400 feet deep, close to half a mile. And to his shock, the ropes didn't touch the bottom. And since he didn't have any more ropes left, 2,400 feet, that's a lot of rope. He declared that the ocean was just immeasurably deep, and he um, legendarily said that it was unfathomable. Reality is, he would have needed another 50 such ropes spliced together to actually hit the bottom of the deepest part of the ocean, the Marineris Trench, which is 36,000 feet deep. You could fit Mount Everest with plenty of room to spare in that trench. So he considered the ocean in its depths unfathomable. And trying to understand the love of God is something like that. We're like these sailors splicing ropes together that barely scratch the surface. 
And as challenging as our trials are, there's nothing so deep as God's unfathomable love in the midst of them. So again, verse 31 says, what then shall we say to these things? I'd like to rephrase that. What then will you say to these things? How then will you respond to this unfathomable, incredibly deep, immeasurable love of God? And it begins by asking the right questions. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you that you have secured salvation for all those who believe. And when we were running for hell and we were living in our sin, you picked us up and you rescued us and you changed us. Lord, I pray that we would be impacted by this unfathomable love of God. I pray that we would leave here asking the right questions and pointing others to this amazing love with which you have so deeply demonstrated by sending your son, Jesus, on the cross. We thank you for who you are and what you've done. And in Jesus' name, amen.